maybe a few weeks. We had taken a break and now we're back in it. And so uh, we're getting to the end of it. I believe next week will be the last week. So um, I get to talk through chapter 5, the middle of chapter 5. So I just want to kind of share some of the things that uh, God kind of laid on my heart. I was just kind of preparing for this, uh, for this week. So as we've been working through the book, there's a couple of things that kind of themes that jump out at us um, that we've kind of worked through. And one, as you can see in the title, is uh, evidence of uh, salvation or evidence of faith and the assurance of salvation. And so as John has kind of been, uh, as we've been working through the, his letter, uh, John has been giving us these different uh, tests to uh, assess the genuineness of our uh, profession in Christ. So he's been uh, kind of helping us see you claim X is X true in your life based on this test. And so he's been giving us that for the last few uh, chapters that we've looked at. Shannon kind of alluded this when he mentioned uh, last week how there's these three almost categories of tests that John gives us through, uh, through this book. And the first one is this idea of doctrinal tests. So this idea of uh, assessing what do you believe about Jesus and is that true? Second the category would be the idea of this moral test or this test of obedience. Do you uh, obey what God has commanded you to do? And lastly, this idea of relational test. So you claim to uh, love God. Do you love your brother? And so this, that's the idea of do we love each other uh, and do we have a good relational health um, if we claim to be a Christian? So that's kind of what John's been helping us do over the last few uh, times that we've looked at this passage. And when he come, as he's coming, landing the plane on, um, in this last chapter, um, John kind of shifts back, shifts from the test to kind of the object of our faith. So he's kind of moved from uh, helping us see, evaluate the profession of our faith to see who do we say we believe in. So it's almost like he's kind of coming back to that uh, as we kind of land uh, the plane uh, in, in towards the end of First John. So let's look at the passage and kind of dive in. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 5 verses 6 through 12 this morning. Now read for us. Uh, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. And if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have his life. So as you kind of read this passage, you see kind of what jumps out at you is there's almost like two natural breaks in the passage. Uh, verses 6 through 8, uh, we see John kind of uh, marshalling out uh, three witnesses and providing this three-person testimony to, uh, to the person of Christ, right? To almost establishing the identity of Christ. And the last part of that passage, verses 9 through 12, John talks about two possible responses to this truth. And kind of what that means for us. So two possible, so this truth about Jesus' identity, two possible responses, and what are some of the implications of those responses? So let's kind of kind of unpack that and dive in and just look at what John has to say about that to us. So, and as we begin uh, the passage, 
I think one of the implied questions that we, you, we can kind of gather out of this is John is asking us a simple question. And the central question that he's asking is, do you believe God's testimony about Jesus, that he's fully human and fully God? It's basically the central question that John is trying to answer. And well, before we answer that question, we kind of need to look at what is God's testimony of Jesus. What does John say is testifying about Jesus? We see that in verses 6 through 8. But he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. You see, one of the reasons that John is writing this passage to his readers, kind of towards the end of this letter, is that he's trying to combat the false doctrine of Gnosticism. I think we've mentioned this uh, in the se- earlier in the series, but uh, John is trying to uh, address some false doctrines that have kind of creeped into the church that he, he's pastoring. And the doc- false doctrine of Gnosticism basically denied, it denied a lot of things, but one of the key things that it denied is the uh, humanity of Jesus Christ. Okay? They, the Gnostics believed, um, I mean, they believed in God, but could not reconcile their version of God by this powerful being with the biblical version of God that uh, claims that Jesus was a human, he was born of a woman, and he died on the cross. Like, they could not reconcile those two pieces. And that made them uh, basically start preaching a different gospel that said that Jesus became God at his baptism, and he stopped being God right before he was crucified. Right? And that accounts for, he, didn't, he did all the cool things while he was God, but the birth and the death was he wasn't God. And so that's how they reconciled with, uh, reconciled this uh, truth of Jesus' identity as human and God. So um, while we might not have Gnostics specifically among us, I believe there's a lot of different versions of Jesus that we see within our own culture, even among Christians, right? A lot of versions of Jesus that are not biblical. And I think so John's uh, letter here is relevant to us even to this day, even though we might not believe specifically what the Gnostics believed. I remember back in college uh, having a conversation um, at, a job, at a part-time job that I had, at least to Muslim guys. And so if you know what, Muslims believe in Jesus, but they believe that he was just a prophet. He, they, don't, they deny his deity and don't, they claim that he did not die. So there's you know, a, lot of different versions of Je- a lot of different versions that they believe about Jesus, very different from what we believe. And so kind of as the conversation was going, uh, we, I kind of just landed, uh, we just kind of got to a point where I, w- I just mentioned, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and that he came as, uh, as a human and he died on the cross for us. And these guys were like completely insulted. Right? They were like, how could you claim that? Like, do you, do you actually hear what you're saying? You know? So they, it's two of them and just one of me, so they're just kind of going back and forth, back and forth. And, um, and I think at one point, uh, one of them just like leaned over, just like, stared at me and said, why would you think God would want to be human and why would he die for you, right? And I was like, uh, when he put it that way, I was like, I think it just got personal quickly, right? And I was like, uh, I, hadn't th- I hadn't quite thought of it in, this, in those terms. I was like, um, I just blurted out because he loves me, because he loves me. And both of them almost fell out their chairs. They were like, this arrogant guy, why would he believe that God would die for him, right? And I think we've ha- I've had multiple conversations like that since then, 
But I think it's, it's what happens in each of those circumstances is when our version of God does not agree with the biblical understanding of God, we find ourselves at this crossroads. And that's what John is trying to help his readers. They were wrestling with, is the Gnostics version of Jesus and his Savior true or is what God claims to be who Jesus is true? What is, what is the right? And that's what John is trying to work through in this passage. If you look at verse 7, excuse me, 7 and 8, it says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agreed. And so John, to kind of convince his jury, which is his readers, which is us, he marshals out these three witnesses. It begins with the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was present with Jesus before his incarnation, at his incarnation, throughout his ministry, at his death, and even post, uh, post-resurrection, right? And so Jesus, uh, John, uh, John calls on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be the first witness because he knows that the Spirit can testify to Jesus' deity. And there's not a lot of uh, confusion around that. The next two witnesses he marshals out are the water and the blood. And as you, if you read the commentaries around it, there's a lot of discussions around the references of the water and the blood. Most, uh, almost all scholars believe, uh, agree that the wa- blood refers to Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross uh, and ref- that kind of affirms his identity as a human being because only human beings can die. Gods don't die, right? And so it affirms that aspect. But there's a lot of confusion or disagreement, I should say, about what does the water mean? What is the water referring to? And so there's three possible uh, variations that uh, different scholars believe. I'll give you those three. I won't have time to kind of expand all, all of it. And I'll kind of just give you, um, kind of tell you the one that I landed on. And we're just going to have to move on because of lack of time. But the possibilities are the water refers to the waters of baptism. Right? Jesus, at, at, uh, we read in the Gospels that John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the river of Jordan. And the Holy Spirit descended on him. And God announces uh, that Jesus is his beloved son. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is refers to uh, the time of the cross where there's a Roman soldier pierces Jesus' side and we read that blood and water flowed out, right? Basically confirming his uh, death. So that's, one pos- that's the second possibility. And the third one uh, is uh, it's possibly referring to Jesus' birth and the waters refer to the waters of birth, right? And so can, as we look at the three uh, options and you read around the context of uh, the passage, I've, I've landed on number three, that I believe that John here is referring to the water as the waters of birth because he's trying to affirm or uh, trying to combat the false doctrine of Jesus' uh, Jesus's humanity. And so he's affirming Jesus' humanity by saying Jesus did, was born and died, right? And I think that, that seems to be, make the most sense to me. Now, if you, are, if you need more information or are interested in it, you feel free to read the commentaries so you can be more confused about it. But that's, that's kind of where I've landed on it. So, but respective of what, the, what interpretation you land on, one thing is, one thing is true, and that's the central point that uh, John is pressing in, uh, into us, and that is that if Jesus did not take on the human nature at his birth and bear our sins in his death as a human being, he cannot reconcile us to God. But if Jesus was not human, fully human, he could not have been the right substitute for us on the cross. Right? And that's the central truth that John is trying to address here. He's simply saying that uh, the false teachers, by denying Jesus' humanity, they're teaching about, G- they're robbing Christians of their salvation. 
By denying Jesus' humanity, they're robbing Christians of their salvation because it's important that uh, the person of Jesus Christ is essential to our salvation. If he had to be the right sacrifice, he had to fulfill the law as a human so he could be a uh, proper substitute for us as human beings. And that's essentially what John is uh, calling these witnesses. He, co- wit- he calls the witness of the Holy Spirit as the, eternal, uh, as the eternal witness, and he refers to water and the blood as witnesses to Jesus' humanity. The biblical concept of Jesus being fully human and fully God can be a little confusing. It's not something that um, you know, we uh, encounter a lot. Um, there's not a lot uh, of comparisons that we have to refer to. So I just want to spend a little bit of time uh, kind of exploring what do we mean when we say Jesus is fully God and fully human, right? I won't go into a full-blown uh, apologetics here, but just a quick kind of uh, uh, looking at few passages in Scripture or just kind of few points to um, address this idea just so that you can kind of get an idea of what we mean when we say Jesus is fully God and fully human. So the Bible teaches that um, when we, when the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God, uh, he's, the Bible is not saying that Jesus was like God, or he was close to God, or he had some features of God. Rather, it says that Jesus was God himself. Okay? And so the way the Bible teaches that Jesus is God is by showing us that Jesus possessed all the qualities of God. Right? And that's one of the ways that he, they aff- uh, the Bible affirms the attributes. Now, again, I won't go through all of it, but I, I just want to mention three or four attributes that I think uh, are attributes of God and show you how Jesus possesses those. One, we, uh, we believe that God, Jesus was omniscient or that he knows everything. And so when you uh, read passages uh, in the Gospels where John, uh, Jesus uh, says, where it's written about Jesus that he knew their thoughts. He knew what was in their heart. Right? It's almost like he knew things that human beings would not know. Only a God would know. Right? And so that kind of demonstrates for us that he knew everything. Second, we, uh, we see that Jesus was everywhere, or we call it omnipresent. Right? And we see in different passages throughout scriptures, I mean, uh, one that is very popular is at the end of Matthew where the Great Commission is preached. And John, uh, Jesus says, I will be, be with you till the uh, end of time. Right? Just representing being in multiple places where he says two or three are gathered, I will be among their midst, right? It kind of demonstrates that Jesus uh, claims, to have been, claims to be in multiple places um, or at all, uh, claims to be everywhere and not, is not um, restricted to a single location. He's all-powerful, right? We see throughout diff- uh, the examples that we see throughout Scripture or through the Gospel specifically where he drives out demons, he cal- calms the sea, he calms the storms. Essentially, claim or proving that he has power not just over uh, just creation, but over all creation, right? Not just over human beings, but over all creation. So those are some of the examples that I think uh, demonstrate that Jesus has these qualities that only God would have. I mean, there's quite a few uh, that, uh, that I can go uh, talk about. I'll just mention it. One, he, we, uh, in Genesis, we see that Jesus is creator, that he was with God before the beginning of time. He uh, rules over everything. We see that in Matthew and Revelation. He never began to exist or will never cease to exist. And he depends on nothing outside of himself for life. Right? And that's, that's another critical point. We think about human beings, right? We look to God as the source of our life. But God, he's his own source of life. He does not depend on anything or any, uh, anybody else for his life. 
That's when Moses asked God, who should I say sent me? What does God say? I am who I am, right? He could not have said, I am the God like the Son or etc. He just goes back to himself and claims that he is the, uh, he is the source of his authority. And so uh, if you were to summarize all of it, it basically boils down to that everything that God is, Jesus is, because Jesus is God. Everything that God is, Jesus is, for Jesus is God. Okay, kind of moving into his humanity, what does it mean for God to be fully human? You kind of work through a similar treatment where we just look to see if Jesus possessed the qual- basic necessities of what it means to be human. All right, so what does it mean to be human? If you were to just boil it down, it would be you have a birth, you have a death, and you have, and you have a body. It's basically what you can boil it down to. Obviously, there's aspects of soul and mind, etc., that go into it, but that's the basic necessities. Um, uh, when, we, when we look at um, the different passages in Scripture, obviously Jesus' incarnation in Luke and the Gospels talks about Jesus being born as a baby from a human mother. Uh, he had a physical body that grew tired, that was thirsty. He had human emotions like uh, he cried and he, uh, he was tired. He was sorrowful. And so he basically lived on earth just as we do. He held a job. He had siblings. Right? And lastly, the uh, piece that he, con- uh, he affirmed on the cross was that he died. Right? Just as a human being did. So that's kind of basically what I, well, I'll, I'll stop in terms of saying Jesus was fully God and fully human because he possessed the qualities of God and man. Right? And so time does not permit me to dive into all the questions that I may raise for you, but um, we will be addressing this um, to some degree, to a little bit more detail at the Renew classes. So if this is something that you're interested in, feel, uh, make it a point to uh, attend those, and um, I'm always here to help answer any questions outside. Um, so basically, John calls on the historical facts of Jesus' birth, right, his death and uh, birth, and the eternal witness of the Holy Spirit to affirm the true identity of Jesus. So that's kind of the first part of this passage that we looked at. He brings these three witnesses, affirms Jesus' identity. And the second part of it, uh, we, John is basically giving us two possible responses to this truth. Right? Do we believe that God's testimony of Jesus, that he's fully human and fully God? And John says there's only two responses, yes or no. And then he goes on and gives us what are the implications of believing each of those responses or having each of those responses. So let's look at those verses again, verses 9 through 12. Verse 9 says, If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God. He is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so the first response that uh, John brings out here for us is to say, if you deny uh, the identity of Jesus as affirmed by the Gospels or affirmed by God, then you call God a liar. Right? And so John is basically not pulling any punches. He goes straight to the point. By the way, I, I just have to mention, what John is not saying is that if you have questions or don't quite understand this uh, doctrine that you fall in this category, 
Rather, he's referring to more of a defined resistance to Jesus' identity as fully human and fully God. Does that make sense? So if you have questions about it, it's not referring to you. It's more uh, people that deny Jesus' true identity and teach a false gospel. That's who John is talking about. And John says, if you fall in that camp, one, you make out God to be a liar. We're, in fact, rejecting God's proclamation of Jesus, and thus that makes him a liar because Jesus claim, uh, God claims uh, Jesus to be fully human and fully God. So taking it one step further, and John doesn't go here, but I think as I was thinking about this, it kind of almost breaks down the rest of uh, our Christianity or even our belief, right? I mean, think about it. If God is lying about this one thing, what else is he lying about? Is he lying about what he says about you, what he says about eternal life, what he says about himself, what he says about creation, what he says about loving you? If we, make, if, we trust that, if we believe that God is lying about the central piece, then we cannot in our right minds follow anything that he says. Because he might be lying about those things too. That's the first implication of, this, of denying Jesus' identity as fully human and fully God. The second implication is that you don't have eternal life if you deny Jesus' identity as fully human and fully God. And part of that has to do with, and John is saying this and he lays this out in here, is because God has put Jesus as the source of eternal life. So if you deny that, God's uh, proclamation of that, you're denying the only source of eternal life that is present. And so John says, not only are you making God out to be a liar, you uh, also lose eternal life or you don't have eternal life is the way he phrases it. So if you find yourself in that camp, John has... Uh, a couple of, uh, implores us to do a couple of things. One, he implores us to reject any false doctrines about Jesus other than the true testimony of Jesus. Right? He says to reject your version of Jesus and trust uh, God's testimony about Jesus because John says God's testimony of Jesus is superior than any man's testimony. And that's the first possible response. You reject God's identity and you make God out to be a liar and you lose the ability to have eternal life. The second response that we have with this truth is to say yes and amen to God's, um, God's proclamation of who Jesus is. And John says, if you proclaim and if you agree with God on this proclamation, then you have eternal life. And so John affirm, says that if you affirm this truth, the Spirit is in you and you have eternal life through His Son. If you remember, as you kind of uh, flip a few pages back to for, uh, the beginning of 1 John, John actually begins the passage. If you look at verses, um, chapter, the first chapter, verses 2, he says, uh, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so John goes on to talk about how he and the other apostles experienced this firsthand. Right? He circles back to this idea towards the end of his letter and says, Jesus is that life, eternal life made manifest. He is the one that we interacted with and experienced on a first-hand basis. So as he's uh, kind of concluding it, he's coming back to that idea. I think a lot of times, um, I know growing up in the church and hearing about eternal life, um, basically all of my Christian life, um, I kind of had this perception of what it is, means to be eternal life. So I just want to kind of explore that with you guys. And what does it mean for us to have eternal life? Or when we say we have eternal life, what are, what are we talking about? A lot of times, I don't know about you, eternal life was this um, Christian retirement program, right? right? Something that's out in the future, 
will come when we die or you know when we um, when we cease to exist on earth right it's not something oftentimes that we think of as relevant to us today right so we think of it in the future and a lot of times we don't really care that it is not, it is not relevant to us today right um, we don't like the alternative because hell doesn't sound fun so let's just make sure we're getting to heaven because that seems to be the better option of the two so a lot of times I think we, we think of eternal life as just this novel concept because we won't have to deal with it while we're alive. But Jesus, John and the other apostles didn't see eternal life in such a way. They saw eternal life as beginning and in the current possession of believers. So if you believe that Jesus, uh, in Jesus, then you have eternal life as soon as you become a believer. And that is how the John and the apostles saw it. I, don't, I, I won't make you turn there, but if you actually flip to the Gospel of John, Right? And John is recording Jesus' life and ministry. He talks about how in chapter 17, verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That's John 17, 3. I read it again. It says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so John believed that if you're a believer and have put your trust in Jesus, you have access to this vibrant and soul-enriching life in Jesus. You don't have to wait for it for the future. It's a real, joyous, deep and loving life. The very life that the triune God lives within himself is available to you. It is a life of li- giving and receiving love forever. Again, I don't know about you, but when I think about my spiritual life and my Christian life, very different from what that sounds like, right? This love, giving love and enjoying love forever. It's uh, running from activity to activity or doing these things, being, doing ministry things. There seems to be the bulk of, our Christ, of my Christian life. And so I'm not sure if that's where you are. So I have moments where I experience this vibrant, soul-enriching life in Jesus, but it's not typical. It's more the unusual. The usual is just busyness and uh, just... Uh, hurry and just like moving from one activity to the other and all good things but still just moving from one activity to, to the other and if, if we're really honest with ourselves it's something that I've kind of uh, had to explore myself and be honest with myself is if I look at my life and look at the life of my neighbors that are unsaved my co-workers that are unsaved or my family members that are unsaved there's not a lot of differences right there's not a lot of differences I mean there's peripheral differences like what they do on Sunday and what I do on Sunday, like they might be going um, golfing on, uh, or hunting on Sunday and I come to church, right? That's those, there's those differences. But is there like soul-enriching deep differences between our lives and the lives of our neighbors? As Shannon, I, I, as Shannon was kind of mentioning up here where we talk about wanting the churchless uh, and the Christless to experience this deep eternal life. Uh, one of the one, I, I often wonder if the reason they don't find it attractive is because they think of eternal life as just something in the future too, just like an insurance policy or retirement plan, right? What if they saw us experiencing eternal life as something that's vibrant, soul-enriching, joyous? Do you think they will want that? They'll probably ask you about it too. And so let's look at what does it mean for uh, us to have eternal life? How do we find ways to experience eternal life? Uh, and there's three things that um, I want to kind of talk through um, before we kind of land the plane today. So the first thing um, that I think we need to do to experience eternal life is to kind of shift our mindset uh, to seeing eternal life as eternal living now, right? Sort of saying it's eternal life, life out in the future, it's eternal living. Like we are living eternally right now. 
right? as we, if you're a believer and trust uh, in Jesus as your Savior, you know that death will just be a blip on the radar and you will continue living into eternity, right? And so it's important for us to understand that our, li- our lives will continue into eternity and we, ha- we have to recognize that we st- we're starting to live that now. We're starting to live that as believers now. That you and I can experience eternal life as we fellowship with the triune God and as we fellowship with other people that fellowship with the triune God. And um, again, I think sometimes we, um, because of the influence of um, fairy tales and fantasies, a lot of times we think this is like a magical kind of experience, like, you know, we'll have tingling and fireworks involved. Probably not, right? It's not going to be uh, all that uh, glamorous. It's not going to give special feelings, or it might not even uh, be an easy task. And the scriptures don't claim any of that will be true. But that is why we have the Holy Spirit to remind us, to empower us, to guide us, to constantly be a witness to, the whole, uh, to, to Jesus. I think um, one of the things that I think I have uh, found, and this is probably true for you, is that I think the Holy Spirit has to regularly remind me that I'm eternally living. It shifts my perspective when I'm concerned about the petty uh, things that, that from day to day. I remi- remind myself, in the grand scheme of things, will this matter? And I think it refocuses myself. And we have to constantly do that because uh, the demands of our life, jobs, kids, parenting, neighbors, yard work, uh, car work, whatever it is, will constantly crowd out what it means to live eternally because those things are more pressing and those things are right in front of us and eternal life can be something that's put on the back shelf. So the first thing we need to do is to shift our mindset to think of eternal living instead of just this eternal life. Secondly, I think we can experience eternal life in all areas of our lives by inviting Jesus into every area of our lives. Right? By inviting Jesus into all areas of our lives and surrendering to his guidance. I think one of the things that we, uh, I have kind of uh, felt uh, that was helpful for me is to remind myself what I'm trying to do as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, is I am trying to, uh, or I'm learning to live my life as if Jesus would live it. I want to repeat that. As a disciple, I am learning to live my life as if Jesus would live it. How would Jesus do at my job? How would Jesus parent? How would Jesus be uh, a brother or sibling? Like, how would Jesus do those things? And I want to learn from him. I think it's important for us to do this because uh, we, we sometimes forget, Je- again, Jesus as something in heaven, far away, right? But Jesus himself was a uh, sibling. He, was, he had a job. He, had, he experienced all the human emotions that we did, so we can learn from him. Right? I think some, most of you have probably seen these uh, bracelets about WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I think that's a great kind of analogy. Sometimes I think it's too simplified, but um, it kind of gets to the point of well, how would Jesus do the things that I'm being asked to do? How would Jesus minister? How would Jesus pray? And can I learn from him? So we can invite Jesus and ask him, Jesus, I want your guidance in this as I parent my children. You know, as I do my job, as I minister, right? And this is one way we can experience fellowship with this triune God because that basically is what John says is eternal life, is us fellowshipping with this triune God. And lastly, um, we experience eternal life when we leave the outcomes of all our efforts to Jesus. And this is probably the hardest part of this, right? I know for somebody that 
uh, is driven, as somebody that, you know, I have goals, I plan ahead, I do these things, and uh, I expect results, right? Um, it doesn't matter if it's with Ezra or my job, I'm expecting uh, outcome, right? And I, I expect certain outcomes, and, I, and if I don't get it, I'm like evaluating, it's like, why didn't that happen? What, what do we need to do differently? Let's redo that, okay? Um, and so uh, this, is, this is probably the hardest aspect of it is, even as we minister, as we parent, right? We invite Jesus to guide us through it, but at the end of the day, we need to trust God with the fruits of our parenting, with the fruits of our ministry, with the fruits of our work. Why is that important? Well, it's important because if we uh, don't, and I've noticed this in my life, we'll be tempted to be the God in our lives. If we don't leave the outcomes to Jesus or to God, the Holy Spirit, we are tempted to become our own gods. And we will have our goals. We will do whatever it takes to get there, whether even if it's, whether it's lying, manipulating, uh, even doing good things, we force ourselves to disobey God and find ways to make things happen because we are interested in getting a certain outcome instead of trusting God with those outcomes. And so, and I don't have to tell you this, but we make terrible gods. Right? We've just looked at the trail of uh, what happens when you are the God in your life. Uh, you, you can probably affirm the same thing. So we do our best by God's grace in our parenting, in our being a good spouse, being ministering in our, at our jobs. But at the end of the day, we trust God with the outcome. Right? We trust that when he says to, uh, that he will provide, we work hard, we do our job faithfully, but we trust that God is the, at the end of the day is going to provide for us. He's going to take care of the outcome. We pray for healing, but we trust God with the outcome. Whether it is the outcome that we're looking for or not, because Jesus is in charge of it, if it's the outcome that we want, he would have given it. If it's not the outcome that we wanted, He's still in charge, right? And that puts ourselves, takes the pressure out of ourselves to make things happen on our own, to schedule, overschedule activities, to do things that um, harm us in the long run. We we learn to rest in Jesus. We learn to wait on him. We learn to rely on him. And I find, I found that it makes me worry less. It makes me uh, spend more time uh, going to God in prayer and scripture. So, um, and that's basically kind of the three things that I think will help us uh, shift our focus from uh, thinking of eternal life and living eternally. And I think that's something that has helped me and I wanted to share that with you. There's a lot more that I can say about it, but I wanted to kind of just uh, give you those three just as that you can think and process through. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have from this. But kind of just in the plane, our day-to-day experience can be a lot of times wearing and painful and all of what I'm saying can sound like, when does he have time to do all this, right? Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I think if our focus is on Jesus, who God claims Jesus is, then we know that in the midst of all of this, God is pruning us, God is sanctifying us so that we can have the life that he wants us to have. It might not be the life that the world says that we will have, but it is the life that he has and enjoys with the triune God. What God is up to is giving us life, an eternal life, real, joyous, deep, and loving life. And this is what God has always been up to. Um, and I pray that this is uh, something that um, will stay and kind of something that you will kind of think over as we kind of finish up First John, that we, it's not something that we just glance over because 
um, it's something that is critical to us experiencing God in his fullness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning and the word that you've brought us. We trust that in all of this uh, expounding and all the, uh, all the teaching that's come from this, that at the end of the day, we want to keep our minds and our hearts focused on you. All of our activities, all of our ministry, all of our lives, want to make sure it points to you. Thank you for giving us the grace to uh, evaluate what we uh, think about your son, Jesus. Because we know, as we've learned, as John tells us, that what we believe about Jesus has huge implications as, to us as believers. Whether it's with regard to salvation, whether it's with regard to daily life, give us the grace to uh, evaluate um, how we see Jesus. Do we... Uh, see him as our Lord and our Savior, somebody who died for our sins and who's the Lord of our lives. If we don't, I pray that the folks in this room that are wrestling with it, that you continue to um, speak to their hearts, continue to convict them, uh, you give them grace to take one step at a time. We pray for the folks that uh, do affirm your uh, identity as God, fully God and fully human. Pray that we won't be um, complacent about the eternal life that you have, that you've given us. That we won't neglect it for the life that we're living now. That we will continue to refocus and continue to go back to Scripture, go back to prayer, so that we might be reminded that you have an eternal life that's available for us right now. That fellowship with the Triune God takes precedent over every other option. We pray that as we go out this week that our lives will bear the fruit because you're working in our lives, that our neighbors, our coworkers, our families will see the work that you're doing in our lives, that they will ask questions because they're enamored by the work that you're doing in our lives. We pray that this word uh, will fall on hearts that are uh, ready to receive it, Pray that your spirit will go forth and accomplish what your word has set forth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.